you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn And this is Bad With Money Housing is a human right Cancel rent. Landlords are parasites. I'm not sure I fully understood or even considered these concepts and rallying cries until COVID hit. I grew up mired in messages normalizing landlords and rent and evictions and land ownership. I never questioned that these were part of adult life. I knew rents were high and getting higher, but I never asked myself why housing wasn't guaranteed, why safety wasn't guaranteed. Why, especially during a national crisis, or an international crisis, but here in America, a national crisis, we couldn't provide basic shelter for our own people. I thought this way because of the ever-ubiquitous scarcity mindset, one that we talk about a lot on this show. The false idea that gaining one over others is the only way to protect yourself. Darwinism, individualism, every man for himself. I am a rock. I am an island. Especially when housing could have really saved people during quarantine. It's a public safety issue, and it was clear there were no resources or reprieve for the unhoused community. Instead of being taken care of, they were targeted with raids. Evictions were on the rise in some areas, even with legal stoppage. Rent went uncancelled or was simply delayed when payments were always going to be impossible. Okay, so couldn't those who can't afford to live somewhere anymore just move? Well, first of all, have you ever moved? It's horrible. And second of all, why should people have had to leave where they've set up roots? Why should they have had to leave the communities they started and built? Why should big high-rises get put in so we lose the culture of that area? Plus, I had to stop and think, wait, where did these people actually go? So here we are, increased unhoused encampments, empty houses, jacked up rents, empty hotel rooms, no unemployment for undocumented people, language barriers and low-income barriers, lack of internet access for school and vaccine appointments, lack of stimulus checks, medical bills, rents accumulating for months and months. In a real estate subreddit that I belong to on Reddit, someone wrote a saying that I googled and found was widespread. When you rent, you are paying a mortgage. It's just not your own. None of this was new at all to my guest today, Ana Diaz-Casos, the president of Tenants and Workers United. And as she tells us, the real virus is capitalism. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? My name is Ana Diaz-Casos. I'm a longtime resident of Alexandria City, I immigrated here from Peru when I was about six years old with my family. And currently, I am the president of Tenants and Workers United. I sit on the board of directors, and I've been in this position for about a year now. But I have been a member of of the organization for almost 10 years. So uh, it's definitely a place that has been a political home for me, a place where I've gained a lot of community a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills. So a place that's definitely like close to my heart. And today I'm going to be here to talk a little bit more about like our housing campaign and what's been going on in Alexandria City. 
Yeah, so can you tell us what Tenants and Workers United is? Tenants and Workers United, as you can probably tell from the name, <laughs> has a history of being involved in like the housing movement, in the tenant movement. So Tenants and Workers is a nonprofit organization that was founded here in Alexandria about 30 years ago, around the 1980s. So Alexandria is here in the Northern Virginia area. So Northern Virginia is oof, like one of the areas that has seen such a high growth of gentrification because it's so closely located to DC. It's so closely located to the Pentagon. Now Amazon wants to come in here, but we know that these housing issues have existed long before the pandemic, right? So in the 1980s, there is a neighborhood here in Alexandria that we call Chirilawa, even though that's not its official name. Its official name is Arlandria, but no one calls it Arlandria. Like if you ask, where's Arlandria? People will look at you crazy. But if you say, (laughs) where's Chirilawa? Then people will be like, Oh, boom, right there, Mount Vernon Avenue, you can find like the best pupusas. So Tirilawa comes from a city in El Salvador that actually has the same name. And that's indicative of the residents that are, that are there because it's composed mostly of a lot of low income immigrant people, refugees that are coming from El Salvador, that are coming from Central America. And back then in the 1980s, there was a huge civil war happening in El Salvador. So a lot of people fled and came to this area and stayed in what we now call Chirilawa. So back then, there was a huge rush of development and developers in Alexandria wanted to basically mass mass evict the whole neighborhood and create fancy high rises and whatnot. But what ended up happening is residents ended up coming together Tenants ended up coming together, studying, organizing, and actually pushed a class action lawsuit to stop evictions. And from then on, we went forward to starting sort of a 10-year campaign to form a housing cooperative that's called the Arlandria Chirilawa Housing Cooperative that still exists to this day. So we were founded on housing issues, we were founded on tenant rights, and we know that these housing issues have been exacerbated by this pandemic but in reality it's nothing new to our communities and we can see that from the history of of the founding of this organization so uh, right now TWU is not only in Alexandria City but we're also in Woodbridge South Fairfax so these are just other areas here in Northern Virginia and again pushing for housing rights immigrant rights education And we also have a very powerful youth group. They're currently pushing right now to have the Alexandria City Council remove police from the schools. And the youth group is actually how I joined the organization when I was in high school. So it's definitely like a fight that still continues to this day. So that's a little bit about tenants and workers. That was incredible. I mean, we have that in Los Angeles too, this this ongoing fight for developers who want to put in these massive buildings and the community that's been there fighting to stay there. So can you talk a little bit about housing as a right? Yes, definitely. Um, And I think if you look in the Chirilawa neighborhood, if you see like the surrounding areas, like I mentioned, it's about 15 minutes from like the Pentagon, 15 minutes from DC. And 
literally a block from Chinilawa, you will see these high-rise buildings. You will see the fancy apartment stores, the gourmet grocery stores, all these things. So it's like literally a pocket of preserved like community. And yeah, it's just been like preserved. And I feel like we still need to preserve it. And as far as housing being a right, Oh, absolutely. Housing is definitely like, <laughs> all right, especially, especially during this pandemic. And I saw like, I had seen this tweet earlier on in the pandemic where it talked about how COVID-19 isn't the problem, but capitalism is a problem. And that's what's causing like, all these deaths, all these inequalities and stuff like that. And when I read that, I was like, holy crap, of course, right? Because COVID-19, it's it's a virus, but it's just that. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. I'm not an epidemiologist, <laughs> nothing like that. But when we talk about the things that you need to be safe from this virus, our government tells us, okay, you need to socially distance, stay home if you need to, check in with your doctor, like quarantine if you've been exposed. But how can you do that if if you don't have like a home to go to? Mm-hmm. How can you quarantine? How can you be safe? How can you keep your family safe if you don't have a home to go to? And I feel like this pandemic has quite literally in very stark lines pointed out like who gets to live and who doesn't. And so many of our community members have have not lived unfortunately and are not here with us today because the things that we need to be safe and the things that we need to be healthy are not considered rights. And I truly believe that in our world, in the United States, there is an abundance of things. There's the possibility of all of us being able to have like our needs met, have access to food, access to medicine, access to housing. But unfortunately, you know, like under capitalism, all these things become commodities. And there's this idea of scarcity that there's not enough to go around. But we know that this earth, it's abundant and it can provide for all of us. And unfortunately, it doesn't because it's much more profitable to have people be pushed out. It's much more profitable to exploit people and to make money off of people. So I feel like absolutely housing is a human, right? And during the pandemic, especially, it's like a public health issue, right? Because if you need to quarantine, how can you? If you don't have a home, Mm -hmm. if you don't have somewhere where you can recuperate and rest. And even if you do, you're constantly under the threat of, am I going to get kicked out? Am I going to be evicted? Am I not going to be able to afford to pay rent and all of these things? So Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. I do believe that housing is a human right. We've talked a bit about that on my other podcast, Just Between Us. We had Theo Henderson of the We the Unhoused podcast come in and and talk about that a bit if people are interested to hear more. So, okay, we think about these big developments going up and then you talked about mass evictions. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people understand after a mass eviction, where, where do these people that were there to begin with go? What happens to them? Yeah, and that's like a really tough reality to sort of face and to understand. But we've seen that happening continuously in our communities where suddenly people can't afford to live where their family has settled down for for years, where Mm -hmm. it has been like their home where they've grown up in. And suddenly because of 
rising costs, they, they can't afford to stay there anymore. So people end up going to places where it's much cheaper. For example, here in Alexandria City, a lot of people have moved further away from the city area to places like Woodbridge or further down south, like Manassas, Fredericksburg, Stafford, those sorts of areas where the cost of living is much cheaper. But also in those areas, there's there's already a lack of resources here in Alexandria City that has such a huge population of black and brown people. So imagine when you go further south, it's it's even less. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, we see people being pushed out of their homes and having to find somewhere where they can actually afford. And also, I, I've seen this in Los Angeles, in the Echo Park area, when I've driven around East Los Angeles, is the unhoused population, the people without homes have increased exponentially during this time. I mean, Mm -hmm. they either move to a place that they can afford or they're just, they have no option. And like you said, it's not as though the options for, for those people are safe because one, you could pass around the virus. Mm -hmm. And two, there's massive police sweeps. Right. Which will destroy your, your home anyway. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people end up becoming houseless and not having anywhere to turn to. The only solution for people to avoid these mass evictions is for rent to be canceled. Because right now, there's like a federal moratorium on evictions. And that has recently been extended until June, I believe. But all that says is that people cannot be evicted during this time. Mm -hmm. People are still accumulating those rent payments. People are still going to be evicted like once this moratorium is lifted. So Mm -hmm. it's really just like a Band-Aid solution, you know? And for TWU, like when speaking with like our members, we're talking about people that do not qualify for unemployment because they don't have papers, they're undocumented. Mm-hmm. Again, they have not received the stimulus payment. We're talking about already low access to health care, lack of access to things because of the language barrier. So mm-hmm. imagine having gone through this pandemic with no type of aid, basically left to be like discarded. And this has been the reality for so many of our members because I know so many people who have been like affected, you know, you become unemployed, you got laid off. But you, you receive unemployment, right? We're talking about mm-hmm. nothing. And these are low-income people who are oftentimes exploited by large companies, being paid minimum wage. And again, if you're working something under the table, you're getting paid even less than that. So it's people who have received no type of assistance. It's like you can't, you can't even qualify for unemployment. So what do you do? The only thing that will prevent these mass evictions is for rent to be canceled because moratorium are lifted, you still have to pay the whole year of rent, you know, and who who can afford that? Yes, this is what I wanted to ask you about. So it's basically been rent delaying. Mm-hmm. And for those people who are listening who, who don't know or who are not involved in organizing, what is rent cancellation and, and how would it work and how is it different from what's going on now? So what's going on now is basically, like you mentioned, rent accumulation. So the federal moratorium says that evictions can't happen during this time. However, there are still some localities that are still processing like evictions. So it's not hard, fast rule. So we still see some evictions happening. 
and yeah people's rent has just been accumulating so imagine like i mentioned for our most vulnerable populations our undocumented folks our low-income folks you are just building up months and months of rent because you could be facing unemployment you could be facing being laid off you could be facing being uninsured those costs are rising you know if you get sick if a family member gets sick you have to also watch out for food you know medication all the things that you need to survive and you can't afford rent so it's just an accumulation of debt that's been happening over over this past year i would say so that's the current situation that we have going on right now so when rent comes back when evictions are allowed and rent comes back you have to pay back the months that you didn't pay yes yeah, so when oh, that gets lifted okay. like let's say you haven't paid rent for six six months half a year let's say we're you like here in alexandria you're living in a two-bedroom apartment that's around 1800 2000 up and that's on the low end it's a lot of money so yeah that's basically what will happen like once the moratorium gets lifted it's like oh boom you have to pay this amount or you're getting evicted so what rent rent cancellation would mean and i believe there's currently like a federal bill that has been introduced i think it's called the rent and mortgage cancellation act so that federal bill basically would provide like a relief fund for landlords and for, I believe, mortgage owners to cover the losses of payments during the pandemic. And quite honestly, this is the only like real solution that will prevent these mass evictions from happening. So if this bill gets passed, it will prevent hundreds, thousands of Americans from losing their homes. And that's all that it would take. And we know the money's there because our government, we've seen how much they spend on our military. We've seen how much they spend to militarize like our police force. We've seen how much they spent the money on anything but our communities. So we know the money's there and we know it's it can happen, you know, like they just need to make the bill happen. And I truly believe this is like the only way to prevent like these mass evictions. What is a rent strike? So a rent strike is an organizing tactic used by tenants, basically of withholding rent to put pressure on the landlord when they have like a demand that needs to be met. And we've seen rent strikes be used, for example, with housing conditions when landlords refuse to bring up a building or bring up a residence to adequate living conditions. We've seen rent strikes being used we've seen rent strikes being used to sort of a way to negotiate as well. If tenants are organized and come together, they can negotiate on certain terms. Maybe they can negotiate on the rent or different utilities or different things. So it's basically like an organizing tactic to put pressure on landlords. I had not heard of that as a thing that could be done prior to COVID. And I, I had a living situation where we were all in sort of one building and we went to the landlord and said that we, when COVID started, we were like, we don't, we want to pay less rent. And he was basically like, no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we weren't sure what to do. And it felt very like, I mean, what is the, the pushback? We were sort of like, he owns multiple buildings. Like what's going, were they just 
afraid that they were going to lose money on their buildings. Like, I don't, it was seemed very cold, but mm-hmm. he was just worried about himself or what is the deal? <laughs> right. Yes. And we've seen that as well. The sort of lack of response lack of care, lack of really communication from landlords that, again, has been happening even before the pandemic, but it's been even more so during the pandemic. For example, in, in Virginia, there is like a rent, a rent relief program. It's not very effective, not very accessible because what, for one, you can apply individually, but ideally you should apply with your landlord because if you apply individually, it's not guaranteed that you will receive the rent assistance so really you would need to work together with the landlord to fill out the rent assistance program but we've seen that a lot of landlords have been unwilling to sort of go through this like process Mm -hmm. with our members which is just it's just crazy like yeah just unwillingness to sort of work with our members to even fill out this rent relief program so i definitely understand and feel where you're coming from (laughs) We just thought like, oh, we would have this collective power. And then once he said no, we were like, well, what do we do? We all just stop. We could all just stop paying. And then he would, I guess, have to evict all of us. But then everyone was like really scared. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of fear that comes with that because you're like, oh, like I'm breaking the rules. But it's like, hey, they're breaking the rules, too. Don't doesn't everyone deserve a place to be safe and a place to live and especially during this crisis that we're all going through in the world you know and yeah I definitely understand that fear but I think like when you're able to organize and you're able to come together as a community especially like if you were able to come together as a building like that makes your demand that much stronger you know Mm -hmm. yeah so I want to talk a bit about the tide turning on landlords, at least Mm -hmm. in the larger community. The like acceptance and criticism of landlords have really changed as the pandemic went on, at least in like my small little world. And it was very interesting to see like a lot of celebrities taking flack for being landlords and (laughs) all of a sudden people being interested in who was a landlord. And I think a lot of it, I'm just talking, but I think a lot of it is like this interesting thing where when everything started, they were like, okay, why don't we start putting unhoused people into hotels? Then the hotels were like, no, like, cause they were empty anyway. Then it was like, okay, well, I want to rent this place and I want to Airbnb it out. I don't want to actually live in the community. And then it's like, okay. But, you know, I think there's been more and more pushback on like, hey, you're in the community, but you're not doing anything. I just put landlords are into Google and parasites <laughs> and parasites automatically came back. And I just I got landlords are definitely in a parasitic relationship with the rest of society. There's no ethical justification for landlords. Having a roof over your head should not be a privilege. I loved it. I was really enjoying myself reading it. <laughs> and so how have you seen the tide turning on people's awareness of of what landlords actually are and what do people need to change about how they think about it? Yes, I've definitely uh, observed the same things that you have, especially in in my like personal circles and stuff like that. It has definitely like sparked up a lot of conversation, a lot of necessary conversation, I feel. But again, the same, I've seen people defend landlords and I'm just like, 
Okay, hold up. First, like real estate and like properties are supposed to be like investments, right? And investments are not guaranteed income. Investments are supposed to be risk of profit, risk of loss as well. So if you're the landlord and all of your income is just coming from housing, like, what are you doing? Your whole, your whole income is just coming off of other people's income. Like, you know, there's like a risk of loss of that as well. And I feel like that's something that needs to be understood. You're doing an investment and you're not guaranteed a profit. You're not guaranteed that. So that's definitely like one way that I think of it. And at the same time, what I wish or what I would want for people to know and to understand is that that everyone is deserving of having a roof over their heads. Everyone is deserving of having safe housing. And I think there's more than enough for everyone to have that. And I feel like once once we take a look at sort of like the landlord-tenant relationship, how is that upholding that? It's not. It's not. It's not because when you care more about making a profit versus people being like safe versus people being able to have shelter, able to have like a home, how does you making the profit off of that more important? So yes, I would love to see people examine more this idea of how are landlords parasites and I would also love for people to learn more about indigenous sovereignty and what land back means. And I feel like that's like a conversation that I've seen pop up a lot more that this very real idea, not idea, this reality that we live on stolen land and this land wasn't ever ours like to begin with. You know, this land was indigenous land, you know, and me... I'm like a Peruvian immigrant on my mom's side. All of my family members come from this one small town, which is where I'm from, in northern Peru called Paihan. And on my dad's side, my great-grandparents are Quechua indigenous people. So me being like a descendant of indigenous people from Peru and sort of understanding our worldview and understanding like my roots and where I come from, like, you know, we don't believe the land is is to be owned land isn't like yours land isn't it's not mine it's not yours it's all of ours and the land can more than provide for like all of us so i would really encourage people to sort of learn more about the indigenous nations and tribes Mm -hmm. that whose land they are on and how they have always been like stewards of this land Always. Even before America was founded, indigenous people were already here. My ancestors were already here before America was founded. And now I have to pay rent. Like, hello. I think certain things are so ingrained in society and certain Mm -hmm. things are so normalized. The idea of a landlord's power over you, the fear of eviction. We've talked a lot on this show about things being legal, but not necessarily ethical. That comes up a lot. And I would encourage people to look at the relationship between tenants and landlords in a different way, even if that makes you a little uncomfortable, because it isn't what you've grown up with. It isn't Mm -hmm. what you've seen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're listening to this, your inclination might be to have more empathy for the landlord Because, oh, these tenants, they're so wily and they won't, you know, they're so unreliable or whatever. Mm -hmm. I would encourage people listening to 
think about why your immediate side goes to the landlord. And I find that that might be a thing where it's kind of like when people side with billionaires where you go, well, one day I'll be that. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, you won't. (laughs) Yeah, one day I'll be lucky enough to be that. And I think especially now during the pandemic, we're losing a lot of stuff. I mean, you walk through the neighborhood and and you're not seeing the shops that used to be there. You're not seeing Mm -hmm. the restaurants that used to be there. And those people were there long before we were. And I don't think anybody thinks about, well, where did they go? Right. What, What happened to them? Where are they now? Have you noticed an increased interest in your work from those in power? So for us, since we're one of like the few organizations in Alexandria that is not only providing services, but actually like organizing our community, every time there's like a crisis, it's like, boom, eyes on us. But it's Mm -hmm. not like a sustained interest. I feel like it's like a spotlight that gets shown. I'm not a native Mm -hmm. English speaker. Shined (laughs) on us. Oh, you're you're doing amazing. I am and I'm not and I don't know any words. <laughs> yeah, but it's like an attention that ebbs and flows. I would say most of the time it's us trying to get attention from elected officials to sort of hold them accountable for their lack of like care and responsibility towards our communities. And I feel like if there is interest, it hasn't really translated into an actual change in the reality for like our members because if people in power have been like listening there's been things that we've been demanding since our organization started and even in during this pandemic like there's so many things that we have been demanding you know we need a lot of these things to be accessible like oh you need to sign up for rent relief well you need to have internet access it's in English. It's not like accessible in other languages. You need to be able to like scan documents, you know, all of these things that are not accessible for like our members. So mm-hmm. yes, I I feel like it's like a, a spotlight that gets thrown on us when there's crisis, but not sort of sustained all throughout. Yep. You mentioned too that you wanted to talk about COVID and lack of access to vaccines and testing and how that goes hand in hand with the housing crisis. So mm-hmm. I I would love to talk about that. What what have you seen with that? And how does that go hand in hand? Yes, well, sort of like the same things, you know, as the application to receive rental relief. We've seen through the statistics that COVID has hard hit communities of color, black and brown people, low income communities. We know these are are people that are basically dying for this pandemic. Yeah, we see that people who are receiving vaccines is not the same. For example, I went to go get the first dose of the vaccine here in Alexandria, and 95% of the people getting the vaccine were white. And I was like, hold up, because this is not who is being like mostly affected by this. But the reason why, you know, people are, aren't having access is because the same things I mentioned, there's a language barrier. Mm-hmm. There's a need for like internet access. And that has also been like a huge thing during, during the pandemic. I feel like a lot of people don't realize how internet access is a problem for a lot of like low income communities and how that has been like an issue during the pandemic because now everything is online and it's like, well, how are the kids going to connect to online school if they don't have internet access? Right. 
how how can we sign up for testing if we don't have internet access? How can we sign up for the vaccine if we don't have internet access? And if it's not even like in a language that we can understand. And Alexandria, it has like a huge immigrant population, a huge East African, West African population, Southeast Asian population. So we're talking about a need for things to be translated in, in things other than like Spanish. Mm-hmm. We don't see that. So people are not signing up for these things. People that are the ones that have been like most affected are not signing up for these things and are not having access to these things. We need that focus on us because it's our communities that are taking the brunt of this. It's our communities that one are working these like service jobs that don't allow for social distancing, that don't allow for like pay time off, that don't allow for like having access to quality healthcare. And it's our communities that are dying in this pandemic and are being sort of like sacrificed. Yeah, we're not the ones that have access to testing. We're not the ones that are having access to the vaccines. So I feel like that's something that we definitely like need, you know, more access to these things because we're taking like the brunt of it. I mean, in my experience, it's been organizers, local community organizers, pop-ups, things like that, that have been taking care of these communities more so than the local governments of these communities. And that, to me, has always been an ongoing problem that we talk about on this show, where like we are picking up the slack, organizers and groups like Tenants and Workers United are picking up the slack where those resources exist elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think I think if anyone listening to this is like grappling with the idea of housing as a right, I think it's it's similar to healthcare as a right. It's similar to mm-hmm. like there's there's not it's not a scarcity. Like mm-hmm. if someone else has access to housing or healthcare, it's not going to take away from your access. It doesn't mean that the work you've done to earn, quote unquote, housing or healthcare doesn't mean anything. For myself personally, I'm not thinking like, oh, what is it that white people are thinking? Or like, how can I appeal more to white people? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm thinking, you know, like, how can our community be more empowered to realize that when we come together, we can achieve these things to realize that we don't have to like work hard. You know what I'm saying? What would be the ideal changes that would happen in the community? People like racialized people, black and brown people, low income people having that political education that like shift into knowing that you don't have to be this extraordinary hardworking like person to be worthy of of these things and that's something that could be applied to everyone because you mentioned earlier like i said like an empathy issue do people need to be more understanding and i think there's this idea because i feel like the united states is a meritocracy you know like you work hard so you get good things you work at this, you put a lot of effort and you deserve like all these good things like a, a raise and healthcare and housing and things like that. But that that's not working out because it's leaving so many of us behind. If hard work was what it took to have a good quality of life, how come my parents don't have that? You know, mm-hmm. how come X, Y, and C's parents don't have that? Like my parents work so hard. You know, it's this idea that you mentioned earlier, like, oh, maybe one day I'll be able to be a millionaire. 
but you know that's not the reality the american dream of achieving huge amounts of success because you work hard is not a reality so i feel like if people were to shift away from that people were to shift away from this idea that only if you work hard you deserve good things that we'll be able to see that everyone everyone is deserving of housing everyone is deserving of health care everyone is deserving of education everyone is deserving of food in our communities i would love to see more of that empowerment and like organizing and coming together so that we can like achieve these wins i've been organizing i've been with tenants and workers united for about 10 years as like a member people in power don't just you're like oh hey like we need this and they're not like oh cool yeah <laughs> you yeah. know like they're not like oh yeah you make like such a good point awesome here you go it doesn't work like that it takes a lot of time effort sustained organizing to have wins in a campaign and it all stems from people power and that's really what it takes to make these big changes it's community coming together and knowing that we don't have to ask these things we're worthy of them already we don't have to like prove it we're already worthy of it coming together and helping each other and doing things for each other and not waiting mm -hmm. has kind of been a theme of this season almost the rent cancellation right you could wait for that kind of thing to to happen or you can strike or you can know your rights yeah, it's just a, an individualized capitalistic society versus a society where it's a real community. Yeah, exactly. You summed it up like perfectly. And that's what's been happening during this pandemic. You know, it's really has been people coming together to look to look after one another. And, you know, with tenants and workers, like I mentioned before, our community base or member base is largely low income, black and brown, undocumented immigrants. And during this time, we've really tried to get these housing campaigns going, letting tenants know that we can organize together. And mm -hmm. it's like a work that we've been doing and it's a work that we will continue doing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and I hope people listening feel empowered to, to organize and to fight for themselves and for their communities. Yeah, of course. Where can people find out more about your work? You can follow us on Instagram. It's just at tenants and workers all spelled out. We're also on Facebook under the same name, tenants and workers and in Spanish, inquilinos y trabajadores unidos. Those are where we're most active. And we post updates about like the campaigns that we have going on. And if people want to also donate to our fund that we use, in this past year, in Alexandria alone, we've redistributed about $100,000 to about 275 families here in Alexandria. And the fund that we have, all of that just gets redistributed back to people who really need it. So again, if people want to follow us on social media, donate to the link that we have, it would be super helpful. If you're a landlord and your whole income is coming from other people's income, as Anna said, that's a problem. It's a tough reframing when you, like me, have grown up steeped in capitalism. We have to prioritize human beings. We have to re-examine what we've been taught about the ownership of land. 
And as an aside, you should all be reading Cerise Castle's journalism at Knock LA. Please go look that up because she is covering everything that you need to know about the current moment. And her reporting is invaluable and brilliant. Welcome to Dear Gabby, the segment where I listen to your voicemails, read your emails, listen to your voice memos, and read your reviews. So here's an email from Jacqueline. It says, Hey Gabby, TLDR, you helped me get my financial shit together in time for COVID. I wanted to write in and say thank you and let you know how much you, through the Bad With Money podcast and book, oh yes, Bad With Money book, available now at GabbyDunn.com, helped me out during the pandemic. Growing up, money in my family was always tight. Debt was part of life, and things like emergency funds seemed mythical. Back in 2019, Bad With Money inspired me to finally start sorting out my finances, my debt, and find money in my budget to put into an emergency fund. Fast forward to 2020 and the early months of the pandemic. My employer, like the multi-million dollar dickhead he is, oh, I love that, responded to the pandemic by announcing that our employee health benefits would be completely cut to save costs for the business. Yikes! We were all issued new employment contracts via email and told we had a week to make one of two choices, sign back on sans health benefits or leave. By the time all of this went down, my emergency fund was just enough to let me send a politely worded fuck you email to my manager and leave the company. It was just enough to help me move across the country to a city with a better pandemic employment rate. It was just enough to live off for a few months while I quarantined and found other employment. I'm now working three part-time jobs and my emergency fund is completely depleted, but I am getting by. Sometimes I regret leaving the financial security of working for that company, but overall, I'm really happy I don't work for them anymore. I know I'm privileged to be in this position during the pandemic, and I have you and Bad With Money to thank for helping me get my act together just in time. From the bottom of my heart, Gabby Dunn, thank you. Jay, Vancouver, Canada. P.S. Cutting health benefits was just the most recent in a long line of microaggressions against employees by this company, but for a variety of reasons, many of us chose to leave instead of pursuing legal action. P.P.S. You are an amazing human. Thank you for all the content you create. Thank you, Jacqueline. I'm so glad that I, I obviously did not predict the pandemic, but I'm so glad that, <laughs> that I was able to have you get your shit together before everything went to shit. Okay, so here are some five-star reviews. If you leave a five-star review... I will read it on this show. This is a four-star review, but I did like what they said. <laughs> Why four stars, Steamer Bash? Okay, so Steamer Bash left four stars, but I did like this review. Interesting voices. Gabby has interesting voices on her show. I don't agree with everything expressed on the show, but she's an excellent interviewer. She actively goes for non-white cisgender guests, and she has been very timely this season. Thank you so much, Steamer Bash. I like when people say that they don't necessarily agree with everything expressed, but they still enjoy the show. And yes, I do actively go for non-white or non-cis or non-straight guests or uh, not really any men. Because I think if you want to listen to a straight white cis man talk about money, you can do that on literally any other show. Okay, so here's a five-star review. Please none. Except you're about to please me, please none. Okay, five stars. Learn things and be entertained. I love this podcast. I love the themes of the last few seasons. It's been awesome to watch the host's views and values evolve. It's about money, sure, but it's about so much more. Because let's be real, money touches everything. So thank you so much, everyone. Please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 
It helps so much in terms of other people finding the show. And if you leave a five-star review and I like it, I will read it on the show. You can also write in to GabbyIsBadWithMoney at gmail.com. You can write an email or leave a voice memo. And you can also call us at 844-474-4040 and we will play voicemails that you have left us. Okay. Thank you. Bad With Money is produced and edited by Lindsay Floyd and sound engineered and mixed by Joey Salvia. The supervising producer is Lindsay Floyd and the executive producer is John Wardock. Theme song was performed by Sam Barbera and written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. Additional music by Joey Salvia. I'm Gabby Dunn and I will talk to you next Wednesday. 